Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Thomas Davis. Thomas is a full-stack developer based in Brisbane, Australia. He's currently the CTO of FPV Racing, a new sport that combines high-tech drones with high-speed racing, which sounds pretty awesome. He has led and been involved in many projects over the years, including CDNJS, JSON Resume, um, and he has a particular interest in building and organizing large open-source groups. He's also currently doing development work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, building an action center in Ruby on Rails to lower the barrier to entry when contacting the United States Congress. Thomas has also helped millions of website visitors to learn Jack back, pardon me, to learn Backbone JS through his popular tutorials, and he's the author of the LeanPub book Backbone Tutorials, which has reached over 27,000 readers on LeanPub. In the book, he aims to get developers up to speed with single-page web application development using Backbone as a foundation. In addition to being available on LeanPub, as I said, the book is also available for free at backbonetutorials.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Thomas's professional interests, his books, his experience using LeanPub, and ways we can maybe improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Thomas, for sitting through that intro. Yeah, so thanks for having me. Um, uh, um, so yeah, so I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in being a developer? I also have a, a weird history with computers, I guess. Uh, I think when I was going to primary school, computers in Australia were just starting to uh, be brought into classrooms. So my first experience of a computer would have been probably grade three or grade four. And I used to, if whoever used to finish their math exercises the fastest got to use the computer. So that was like a extra incentive for me to be good at math and to also get time with the computer. And uh, that was my first introduction. And then uh, over the years, I just used the computer in, at school. And it wasn't until about maybe junior high school, I got my first computer. And uh, <laughs> it was actually a funny story because we used to use, my first computer was built out of parts from like the, the dump, essentially. We used to go look for spare parts for computers, the garbage dump, and then my uncle helped me put it together. And then from like that day on, I don't think I've spent anything less than 16 hours a day on a computer. So, uh, wow. <laughs> wow. So I've, I've been a computer addict since then, constantly working on things. It doesn't matter what it is. As soon as I have any spare time, I like to start a new project. Um, I'm hoping to stop that eventually. And uh, I, I guess I just followed. I didn't, uh, I tried to go to university, but I, um, I dropped out after a year and I just uh, started freelancing in web development. And that sort of worked out for me pretty well. And that's pretty much my whole. And that, that's yeah. that's great. That's really really interesting um, to to start that way. Um, and uh, and yeah, do you do you feel like maybe you've um, missed out on anything or have missed out on nothing at all and only gained a few years of life by not not finishing finishing up with say a conventional university degree? Yeah, well, I mean, I, a lot of people say that you don't need university, but freaks in in IT. And I guess I'd just say the same thing. Well, okay. It's not that I didn't need it, but I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with my career path at the moment. So that, that's been fine. Great, great. And uh, I guess at the time they they were offering, uh, you know, software engineering degrees, not web development. And I had been doing web development for about five or six years before going to university. So I sort of knew more web development than they were willing to teach anyway. And it wasn't exactly what I was trying to do at the time. So I didn't really see it as necessary. Plus, I'm extremely lazy, and I didn't <laughs> like going to class. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and and I was wondering how you how you got interested in Backbone eventually. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I learned I was programming an ActionScript up to version two, um, in Flash, 
And I remember one of my high school assignments, we were supposed to build uh, like a ASP database and uh, like a service, like a just a, a an app essentially. And I was like to the teacher, I already know how to do this. Could I, could I build the whole application in Flash so it can look better? And uh, that was extra complicated and wasn't taught in the class because you had to like connect to the database from Flash and make it a whole app inside there. And I guess that was me. I didn't realize until like five years later that I, would, I was already building single page apps in Flash a lot earlier. And uh, just because I followed that front end trajectory, it, uh, it just made sense uh, with the advent of Ajax, well, the popularity of it that uh, apps would go down that route. So I just ended up in doing that. I'm not quite sure how I ended up writing Backbone. So we, so it was actually one of my first experiences with the Hacker News community is I, I post there about six, seven years ago. Uh, should I use Sprout Core, which was uh, the framework before Ember. So Ember, Ember evolved from Sprout Core. And so you Sprout Core or Backbone.js, and that was like my first little post on that made it to the front page of Hacker News. And I got lots of advice, and we're like, screw it, Backbone's a lot more minimal. I don't want to learn everything about Sprout Core. So we went with uh, Backbone at the time. And then as I was learning it, uh, I could, there was no learning materials, so I thought I'd just, you know, write, write it to, I think the first tutorial I wrote was called Backbone.js for noobs by a noob. Uh, <laughs> That's a great title. <laughs> Yeah, and all I was doing was essentially documenting the steps I, it was. It took me to get up to a working application with Backbone. So I didn't actually know anything about Backbone. I was just documenting what I was doing in particular. And then I think I posted that on Hacker News that had like relatively large success, which then said, well, I might as well turn this into a tutorial site or something like that. Awesome. And, uh, eventually turned it into my mobile format. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, your 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 book on LeanPub has been one of our sort of most downloaded books of all time, um, and yeah, yeah, so it's obviously it's, really really useful to people. Yeah, I've had had the time to update it as much as I'd like. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just because the, the the front end framework uh, scene it just moves so fast, and uh, it's it's really hard to like keep up a lot of the time. Um, speaking of moving fast, um, FPV racing sounds pretty awesome. Um, can you can you explain a little bit about what it is and, and where it's going? Sure. Uh, so I got into drones. Uh, well, we call them UAVs. In the community, people like to call it UAS or UAV, um, unmanned aerial vehicles, as opposed to drone, because it's not quite uh, what a drone is. But I think uh, what has happened, uh, the popular world has said that now anything that looks like a quadcopter is a drone. And uh, you know, I'm okay with that, because I'm from the software world. We call everything the wrong name. Um, and I got into that because my housemate uh, is a mechatronics engineer, uh, Donald Ills, and he's become my co-founder. We actually started another website first, which is dronehire.org, which was like sort of Yelp for drone services. So we have like 500 businesses and you can, uh, you, if you need aerial photography in a certain state of the world, you can just search our directory and find all the operators who offer that. And about a year into that, uh, Donald's like, oh man, FPV racing is going to storm the world. It's going to be this new sport. And I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> everyone's tried inventing a sport before. And then another six months later, I, I saw his traffic picking up. I was like, holy, okay, you might, you might be onto something here. So I, I've joined in on the project now. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool sport where you essentially put a camera on the front of a, a drone that's optimized for speed. 
uh, you put the goggles on your head and you you get like a super immersive experience. So I think pilots have described it as being like Superman or like a bird or an eagle. Because, uh, yeah, like virtual reality, it sort of tricks your human cognition into thinking you're actually moving. Not not like in, <laughs> not incredibly uh, adamant to a certain degree. It um, tricks you into thinking that. Uh, and I've seen other pilots. One used to be an ex, uh, his name is Metal Danny. He used to be an ex motocross rider. And he's called Metal Danny because after too many crashes, he has metal in every part of his body. Well, wow. And... What he, what he decided was uh, he needs something that he can still get uh, the adrenaline from, but without the metal in his bones. So he had to quit <laughs> that, and he said that drone racing actually gives him this adrenaline rush, like extreme sports, but obviously he can do it from an armchair. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It sounds really interesting. Um, I was wondering, actually, when I was reading about it, um, what's the state of affairs with drone and or, or you know unmanned vehicle regulation in Australia? Because I think... Probably a lot of people listening will be familiar with the problems that the industry has had with regulation in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously it depends depending on the country. Australia, we actually have a much more relaxed uh, sort of setup than America at the moment. And I think Australian, the Australian government has definitely realized the commercial aspects, um, probably because we have a lot of agriculture here and uh, precision drone agriculture is probably going to be going to be one of the largest industries in the next 10 years. Um but for drone racing, uh, the quads are so light that they don't really even qualify for regulation uh, to a certain degree. Oh, okay. So it, it depends on weight divisions and depending on the countries. And uh, yeah, so it's only past a certain weight division you can't fly something above a certain height or or if it's obviously commercial. Commercial is what uh, is big in the States. You can't really do it commercially. And do you, um, what, But the weight classes are fine. What do you think um, about the possibility of, you know, goods being delivered that way in the future, you know, Amazon style, as it were? Do you think that's something that's going to happen? Sure. So I'm, I'm a web developer and not, and not the engineer of the team. Uh, so I'm <laughs> not so well versed on physics or logistics to know what the best answer oh, for that is. Fair enough. I, I just, um, yeah. I'm, yeah. Now, you know, Amazon's probably got a lot of smart people working there. I'm sure they think it's <laughs> possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it probably is, but I don't know if it'll be that efficient, uh, personally, as okay. opposed to, as opposed to, I mean, it seems like they've got like van delivery down pretty, like pretty down pat. You can take multiple, multiple parcels and you just deliver it all in one big run. It's pretty quick. Uh, and we'll see. And obviously yeah, regulation and safety, you can't fly drones on rainy days. There's lots of problems like that. So I'd like to see how they go. Yeah, actually, moving on to the topic of regulation, um, on your website, you explain your position on internet regulation by saying that, um, I think I'm quoting here, without the input of developers, we can expect that backward laws and regulations will be created. And I'm really interested to know what your position is right now on, on the state of affairs with internet regulation generally and where you see them going in the short term. Yep. Uh, so I think it's like a... There's... The internet is relatively new. I think, you know, the World Wide Web is as old as I am, both born in 1989 so it's, it's sort of interesting to grow up with it and it is this like if you look at the state of affairs of reddit for example it's just a, this under this monster that we don't understand and uh i do think that regulations can be will be put on things we don't understand unless the experts from the field are willing to to take their time and explain things or and whatnot 
so I, I do always urge developers who do have spare time to um, to take interest in internet policy because it, you can't be uh, there's obviously a lot of apathy towards politics all the time and that's <laughs> that's understandable but uh, again for something so new if, if we don't have people out there right or right or wrong to a certain degree um, we just don't have our people out there experimenting in that territory um, and trying to force change for the internet I think we'll end up in a dark place so yeah yeah it's it's interesting you bring up um, you know the newness of the internet and also generational uh, you know perspectives because I think that you know for a lot of people especially you know people like us who spend all our time in front of computers using the internet and it's a an important part of everything we do with our professional lives. We just see it as a utility, like the electricity being on. Um, but I, I know there are a lot of people out there who actually sort of still treat it like some, almost like something that, uh, uh, an, an annoyance that's going to go away. Um, and I remember reading an article by, I think, I think it was quoting the head of the Ontario provincial police, the province of Ontario and in Canada. And he was saying, you know, well, of course, what we really want, what would be ideal would be for people not to be able to get onto the internet without signing on and showing some kind of ID. Yeah. And he meant like every time they go on the internet, that's what he would prefer. And I think it was the same character was in another interview and he was asked about Uber in Toronto and he said, you know, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. I've got younger, younger people who can, you know, who are into that. And it's like this guy's the, the head of an entire province's police force, and he's got a, like a, a deliberately dismissive attitude towards like the computer. Um, yeah. So I'm you know very you know sympathetic to to your to your when I was reading your description of your position on this because it's I mean it really is it is scary when you see that people like that are actually in positions of power over the law, and they yeah. it, it's not just that they're kind of anti-internet it's that they're purposefully un unaware of how much yep, of our life absolutely. is actually driven by that now. Um, and, and, spe- and if- sorry, go ahead. No, I think, yeah, I don't think there's any lack of like uh, motivational quotes from senators and motivational in the sense where you have to do something because they sound so inane. <laughs> we have, we have like one Australian Senator who said that the internet is the biz- biggest existential threat to mankind ever. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, hmm, <laughs> I don't know how to take that. It could, maybe he's, maybe he's right. Maybe he's thinking like Skynet. Maybe he's like really forward thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's probably not true. But that's a really interesting, <laughs> interesting comment. Um, and yeah, speaking of politics, your, your Action Center project for the EFF sounds, sounds really interesting. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Well, one correction, that was mostly last year. And, oh, okay. Uh, uh, so I was just contracting. So I, I was working on a few of the campaigns again, uh, uh, against mass surveillance for the states, even though I'm Australian, so I know it's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> and I was helping out a lot there with a bunch of the orgs and eventually uh, EFF. So we were, we were just volunteering at the time and EFF needed a bit of help uh, sort of rebuilding their CMS for activism campaigns. So my... Uh, Good friend Tina Kennefer brought me onto the project to help out, and it's just a Rails project to help uh, email legislators in America. And that project has now spawned another project which I didn't work on called Democracy.io. Uh, I recommend checking it out. What it does, and it seems pretty simple, is that it lets you email, uh, put in your postcode, and then send an email to all of your all of your legislators. 
in your area and you can choose a topic and send a message. Now, that sounds like super simple. That sounds like something everyone should have. I mean, we have it sort of in Australia built by the state. But the funny thing is that that's not actually uh, possible in the States because first of all, senators don't have email addresses. Wow. So, so how we actually did the project was uh, we use something called a headless browser, which is like running uh, Chrome inside terminal. So it's like running Chrome programmatically. And what we do is when you want to email a legislator, we actually load up their contact form on their website. And then we have a form you put your information in that form, we load up their, their contact form, submit it for you, and then return it. So if you want to email three legislators, we load up three different browser sessions, put the data in there automatically, and then email it for you. And actually, we had to get volunteers to help us populate the contact form database. And we had about 150 developers in 48 hours submit about 5,000 pull requests on GitHub to make this possible. And it was this huge, like, organized project between all the internet orgs. It was quite fun. And now you can, it was incredibly hard. That, so that project took probably a year to even mature it enough to get to democracy.io. So um, that's a, it's a really hard project. A, that's really amazing that, um, that, that, that you guys did that and pull it off. And that it's so difficult just to contact, just to contact uh, yeah. politicians. I mean, if you asked me to do it originally, I would have said that's stupid because it takes so long to, um, to figure out how to like to get because what all 500 contact forms of the legislators are unique so you have to describe in in yaml in a code format what each form looks like that way when we can do that that's the only way we can do it programmatic so it's a huge project but we we actually pulled it off which is impressive yeah that's great that's great um you're also involved with a group called task force i think mm -hmm. so again that was um that's how i got into the digital politics and that was uh, posted on Hacker News again I'm an avid Hacker News reader by uh, Tina Kennefer and he was just he was just looking for a, a group of web developers who have some spare time to to react to so what happens in the political realm is that that uh, bills try to get rushed through the house so it's you know a party might put out this bill and say let's try to get it signed in the next week and if you try to build a website uh, and traditionally to try like combat that, you you wouldn't be. It takes you like two months to launch the thing. So you wanted to put together a team of people who could do it in twenty four hours. How fast can you or just jump on, build the website, and combat that? Raise awareness about a bill that might be passing too quickly. Oh, that's that sounds amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I was reading on your website too that you're um you're really into studying politics and philosophy and literature, and I was just wondering if there's something you're reading right now that you would recommend maybe on, on this kind of subject um, that people would be interested in? Yeah. Uh, not on digital politics. I know. Let me think. No, I don't have any, I don't have an answer for that. Oh, that's, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It was kind of blindside, I'm sure. Um, uh, Moving on to um, LeanPub, I guess, um, I was wondering how you, if you remember how you found out about us, you've been, you've, you've had your book on LeanPub for quite a while now, um, and if there was any particular reason why you chose to use us for your publishing platform. Uh, so I cannot remember for the life of me of why I started LeanPub. I think, I guess I was Google searching for, a, so what I was looking for was I was going to write a book, sort of, and I, um, and I saw that all the solutions around were just the most sort of mundane and complex things in the world, like writing um, 
latex and all that. Sorry, I just I just assaulted all the latex guys. <laughs> they're like a very they're a very vocal minority group. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was incredibly hard to use latex. I didn't want, I didn't want to go down that route. And actually, I think I know why I stumbled upon across Lean Pub is that I wanted to create mobile sort of mobile editions of everything. I wanted to convert it to uh, Kindle. Every, all the devices, like there's so many now, I can't remember them. Um, and that that would have probably been my search originally. And, and my tutorial was already written in Markdown. Lean Pub was like, we support Markdown. And I was like, cool. So then I I copied some of my content over, put it in Dropbox, and my book was like delivered in like 30 seconds. And I was like, what the hell? That's that's just the most beautiful system. <laughs> like, like it's kind of got all the formats in my Dropbox. It's converted everything. It was a really great experience. And I think I think I was trying to evangelize for LeanPub at the time. I was quite happy with what they had done. Oh, well, that's that's great to hear. Um, I was wondering, as speaking of that uh, sort of evangelizing, is through your through your um, tutorials, was engaging directly with the people that were using them. An important part of your process like were you getting feedback from people and then responding to them in order to improve it over time uh i guess not quite not through the lean pub platform because i already had all the other avenues open um most people went through github to talk to me i'm not i don't know if they came from lean pub but yeah a lot of my feedback came through github and twitter okay okay um i have i guess i have a question um if there's anything that you remember from the experience that you think we might improve or if there's anything that you've come across, you know, lately that you would really like to see in a service like this that just isn't, isn't out there or isn't being fulfilled well by anyone. So to be honest, LeanPub is one of those services where I just think it's perfect. I think they do everything. I think you guys do everything really well. Um, and if there isn't something there, I think you guys know what it is already. So I would rarely bother to say anything. Uh, that being said, if I were to, no, I really don't have any sort of constructive feedback. I think you guys do a fantastic okay, job. Okay, well, well, thanks. That's that's the that's the best non-constructive feedback I've ever heard. So thank you, <laughs> thank you very much for that. We really really appreciate it. Um, I guess I guess the last question I have is, um, what's your next project that you're working on? Um, if you if you have any time in between, um, you know, being CTO and uh, and all the other projects that you're doing now, is there anything coming down the pipeline that you just getting ready to, to do? I guess, well, to stay in, to stay in the vein of, well, to talk about LeanPub, uh, I guess I've, I've always idealized writing an, another book, but this one being more more of a novel, and uh, I would, I'll probably end up doing it through LeanPub, and I want to write a novel about the life, not, not, the, not, not about the life of a web developer, but the web developer as a new type of person, or like a, a new, you know, a new protagonist, I guess, to a certain degree. We, we read books all the time about someone who might work in accounting and he, he goes through this life experience. But we never hear books from the perspective of like a coder or developer. You know, like a, you know, like a D.H. Lawrence style where it's actually a really well-written novel, not to say that I can do that, but written from the, the, the main characters uh, in the programming world. And I, I haven't seen too many of that or too much like that. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting idea. Um, I have personally haven't thought about that before but obviously you know the figure of the hacker you know is something that people have a yeah. concept of but usually you know they're kind of like wearing leather and you know involved in inter <laughs> international spy rings or something like that and then and then I guess the other stereotype people might have would be like you know I guess now from you know Silicon Valley that series I don't know if you've if you've watched any of those episodes but that yeah. sounds like a really great idea because I mean software is eating the world right and uh 
you know, yeah. this is going to be, it's, it's, a, sorry. It's, oh, this is quite a large audience. I mean, it, I probably, it probably like a lot of people would read it to, um, <laughs> just to like, I, I like, I love watching Silicon Valley because it's like this TV series about my daily life to a certain degree. So it'd be nice to read a novel or something, a piece of literature that describes this new archetype. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point too that we're at the we're at the point now where it's sort of being defined in the public mind maybe for the first time, um, and to to be there at the beginning of that would be really exciting as a writer. Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll probably end up publishing that through LeanPub because I'm a fanboy. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> great. Um, well, thanks very much for being for uh, being interviewed for the Lean Publishing Podcast. We really appreciate it, and thanks also for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, no worries. Uh, sorry for anyone listening to the podcast. I know a lot of Americans have trouble understanding my uh, pronunciation, <laughs> my Australian slurs. Oh, well, um, I, I think they'll understand you just fine. Actually, we interviewed um, Ryan Big recently as well. So uh, Lean Pub podcast listeners will I, be getting getting uh, warmed up in advance for you. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he's from the South, though. They have a better accent I'm from the North. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks for that.